We all live in stories. Stories are the language of our world, aren't they? Think about your favorite movies. Think about your favorite books, your favorite novels. They draw you in. You begin to feel what the characters feel, don't you? You, you know, you have that sense where their pain becomes European. Their victory becomes your victory. We enter stories and we make them part of our own experience. Stories are perhaps the most powerful form of communication we have because stories speak to the mind, they speak to the body, they speak to the emotions, our spirits. In a story, we can identify with situations we have never been in. Our imagination is unlocked. We can dream what was before to us, something that seemed unimaginable. Everyone has a story, and everyone is a storyteller. All people are storytellers. Think about it. When you come back from a great holiday, a time away, do you come to your family and your friends? Do you pull out a list of things that you did on your holiday? For example, we got into the car. We drove 153.4 miles. Then we stopped for fuel, for petrol, and I bought a Mars bar. Then we drove another 15.2 miles and arrived at our destination. Then we went to the beach at 11.30 in the morning. Now, of course we don't. We don't tell the story like that at all. When our team comes back from Uganda, we'll want to hear the stories of what happened, who they met, what they did. You get back from a great time away, you tell everyone the story from your trip. Do you want to hear what happened? You won't believe what happened when we went to the beach. We love to hear those stories. They draw us in. And it's important that we kind of remember as well that every culture and society of people that has ever existed has been this way. We all love stories. And the world that we live in, the culture that we're steeped in, is formed by a narrative. It's a story, and it's very, very, very powerful. It can form and inform our understanding of ourselves, our place in the world, who our neighbors are, who our enemies are. The story shapes what we think about life and what we think about love. But when we organize ourselves around God's story, not our world's story, we find a freedom from the destructive, anxiety-inducing narrative of our Western world. You see, for the people of God, the story of Scripture is an anchoring story of our lives and our understanding of the world around us. Scripture defines who we are, and it shapes our understanding of life. Most importantly, it reveals to us the God who has come to us in Christ. In God's story, we find freedom. We find peace. 
every person is invited to participate in this story. God desires everybody to be a participant. No one is a spectator. So the question as we come to consider John 9 this morning is, what story are you organizing your life around? And as we're all formed by the stories in our lives, what stories are our lives telling? And here's the big idea. You just might be the only story that somebody may know about Jesus. So let's look at John chapter 9. It'll be really helpful if you have it open before you as we journey through this passage. It's the story of how Jesus changes a man's life, how other people notice that change, and how he told his story. That's very simply what's happening here in John chapter 9. So Jesus is passing by. How the story opens. As Jesus passed by, he sees a blind man. And that takes us right back to what's happened in John chapter 8. It sets the context because in the previous chapter it ends uh, with Jesus being in quite a precarious situation. People want to stone him. They consider Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And then John continues in his account, noting how Jesus passes by this man who is blind. One Bible commentator said, the sense of flow of the text is that Jesus is not shaken or disturbed by the almost deadly confrontation he's just had with the religious leaders. We find him calm, we find him self-possessed, acting with a profound disregard of his enemies and their hatred of him. So Jesus passes by and he sees a blind man. And then the disciples see this blind man too. And for them, this blind man is a bit of a riddle. He's an unsolved riddle. See, they show really no interest in helping the man at all. But they want to discuss his condition. That's where the disciples start here in John chapter 9. But I want you to notice the disciples, uh, that the story doesn't begin with the disciples' question, what caused this man's blindness. The story begins when Jesus sees this blind man, when Jesus notices him. The disciples are only engaged because Jesus himself is engaged. And I think that's a lesson for us all here. We've got to be the kind of people, Jesus people, who have got to see and notice people around us, their needs, their brokenness, and move towards them. Jesus sees a need here, and when everybody else was just passing by, Jesus moves towards this man who had been born blind. So as you gather here this morning, wherever you're coming from, whatever you're going through, I want you to take heart. Take heart this morning that we've been seen and touched in all our brokenness and attended to by a merciful Savior. He notices. He's conscious of what's going on in our lives, just like he was conscious of what was going on 
in the life of this man in John chapter 9. See, it was at that time uh, when the disciples see this blind man, what they're interested in is the cause. What has caused this man's blindness? That's their question that they pose to Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They want an explanation. They're up for a theological discussion. And it's hardly the most compassionate thing really to say in that particular moment. Right? And I guess at their time it was widely held idea that suffering, especially such a disaster of blindness, was due to some kind of sin. It was summarized in the rabbinic saying from around AD 300 that there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. They are consumed with this question, what's caused this blindness? Is this blindness a punishment for something that this, parent, this man's parents have done? Or is it a punishment for his own sin? Some care, kind, of, kind of inherited sinfulness? already uh, going on in the womb. And even some of the Jews at that time believed that it was possible for a baby, an unborn baby, to even sin in the womb. They want to know what was the cause. They want an explanation. But notice what Jesus does. He completely shifts the focus. And Jesus says, in effect, Specific sins in the past don't always correlate with specific suffering in the present. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Was not this man sin or his parents this blindness, this specific suffering, it's not owed to a specific sin of this man or his parents in the past. Don't look there for an explanation. That's what Jesus is saying. And then Jesus goes on to speak about the purpose of God. And Jesus says that this man's blindness on this day is going to be an opportunity for the work of God to be displayed in his life. This is going to be an opportunity for grace to break in, for the kingdom to break in. I really want us to understand that it's not that God inflicted blindness upon this man so that he could later heal him. That's not what I believe is going on here at all. Don't get the idea from this verse that God goes around cursing people so that he can come later and show mercy to them. God doesn't work that way. Rather, God takes what's happened and he turns it into something good. And we see this consistently throughout the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 50, we find Joseph. Joseph who'd been sold into slavery by his brothers. Who then found himself as a slave accused of things he didn't do. Thrown into a prison and left in that prison to rot. But from that position, he rose to become one of the most powerful men in the country, Pharaoh's right-hand man. And later on, when he has the opportunity to confront his brothers who'd sold him into slavery, Joseph doesn't get mad. He doesn't get even with them. 
He had a very different perspective. And he said in verse 20, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And I really think as it was with Joseph way back in the Old Testament, so it is with this blind man. God is powerful enough to take our present sufferings, whatever they may be, and bring good out of it. And as I was thinking about this last night, it reminded me of a word that was coined by Tolkien. Those of you like me who might be a bit of a Tolkien nerd might be aware of his phrase, eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. It's a word for those sudden happy turns in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That's how Tolkien defined it. A sudden happy turn in a story. A eucatastrophe. And we experience it right at the end of the return of the king, his great saga. And uh, Sam the Hobbit discovers that Gandalf is alive. If you would permit me, let me share a little bit over the return of the king with you. Sam lay back and stared with an open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped. Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought that I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What? What's happened to the world? Great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he'd ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clear his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed how do I feel he cried well I don't know how to say it I feel I feel he waved his arms in the air I feel like spring after winter and sun in the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard you catastrophe a sudden happy turn is everything sad going to come untrue, is Sam's question. Tim Keller, he writes, the answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue, and it will somehow be greater for having been once broken and lost. Here in John chapter 9, we see Jesus making the sad things come untrue. He's the light of the world, and his presence changes night to day. It changes 
everything. This man had been blind forever. And he walks over to him in verse 6 and he spits on the ground and he made mud with the saliva and he smothered the mud over the man's eyes. It's a strange thing to do. Have you ever wondered as you've read that passage, maybe you heard it read this morning, what's Jesus doing? Why did he do that? I mean, we have these miracles where, where Jesus just speaks the word and healing takes place. Why did he make this mud pie and plaster it all over this guy's eyes? Perhaps it's an echo of the creative activity of God in Genesis because here in John chapter 9, this sudden happy turn in the story, we find the creator recreating because he's opening blind eyes. Could be. That could be what's going on here. But I think there's also something else going on with the mud pies on the eyes. Because Jesus did it, I think, because it was against the law to do it on the Sabbath. Or at least against the Pharisees' understanding of the law. And this act of Jesus in making this mud and putting it on the man's eyes was going to be then the catalyst for controversy in this passage that we see bearing out from verses 13, verses 14 onwards. You see, the Pharisees had developed so many applications of the prohibition of work on the Sabbath. And one of those prohibitions was the kneading of dough. And the word for mud or clay here is the same word that's used of dough. Jesus broke the rules against kneading dough or clay or mud on the Sabbath day. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why is he being subversive in this way? Well, I think he's doing it to show that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That he is the Lord of the Sabbath, as Matthew 12, verse 8, reminds us. Jesus is showing in his actions what the whole point of Sabbath is. Sabbath is all about rest. Sabbath is all about healing because rest is healing. That's why you rest, so that you might heal, you might be re-energized, you might be recreated. So I think there's no better day than this day for Jesus to find a man who is broken, who's living with the effects of living in a broken, sinful world, and to give that man rest from all the struggles of his blindness. And as a result of Jesus' actions, there's a controversy. And what ensues in the light of this controversy? Well, hearts are going to be exposed. Faith is going to be revealed. And that faith is going to be strengthened. It's incredible what Jesus is doing here. And then we get to verse 7. And Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I think that's a really nice thing to say to someone after you've put mud all over their face and in their eyes. 
go wash in the pool of Siloam. And isn't it interesting that it's at that point then that this man has a choice. This blind man has a choice to make. He could sit there in doubt, wondering what's going on. Perhaps other people in the past have taken advantage of his blindness or made fun of him because of his blindness. And now this person has put mud in my eyes. He doesn't have to go wash. He could have just wiped it off with his hands. But he has a decision to make. And he acts upon that decision. He takes a step of faith and he goes to the pool and he washed. And the scriptures tell us that he came back seeing. He came back seeing. So as we think about this story and as we think about our lives then, it's kind of an echo. Because the truth is, many of us here today were spiritually blind. We were living our lives for the temporary things around us. Things two front feet in front of us. We were blind to the danger lurking around the corner. Many of us were pursuing our own way rather than God's way. And then something happened. Many of us have the same story as this blind man. I was blind in the spiritual sense, but then I met Jesus, and now I can see. I was blind, then I met Jesus, and now I can see. I think there's a a few things that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. The first idea that I want to leave with you, and I'm going to be concise with this. Don't worry, we're not going to go through this whole passage verse by verse. The The first idea is this. We've got to allow God to change us. We've got to allow God to change us. God wants us to change us. He doesn't want us to walk in darkness. He wants us to walk in light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 talks about, For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He wants to transform us. A while back I heard about the Guinness Book of British hit singles. What do you think the number one song is in the Guinness Book of British hit singles? So many to choose from. Bohemian Rhapsody, Candle in the Wind. But it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Quite amazing, actually. Two songs top the charts according to the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles. One of them, My Way by Frank Sinatra. Some of y'all know it really well. I did it my way. And the second, Amazing Grace. The hymn, Amazing Grace. There's been so many versions of it. Judy Collins had a version of it. Pipe bands have had versions of it. But isn't that the choice we have in life? We can either go life my way or we go the way of amazing grace. And here in John 9, this man, blind from birth, allows God to change him and he begins his journey 
on the path of amazing grace. Well, what happens next? Verse 8, his neighbors who'd formerly seen him begging, they asked the question, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. So this guy has lived in darkness his entire life. Jesus healed him. People noticed. People noticed something had changed in this individual. Maybe he was walking around pointing at things he'd never ever seen before. Walking around looking at the sky. He'd never seen the sky. Looking at a tree. Maybe looking at a camel. Whatever he's doing, people noticed that there was something different about the man who used to be blind. And that brings us to the second thing I think we can learn from this story. The second big idea is we've got to allow others to see our changed life. Do people around us notice the difference in us? When they look at our lives, what do they see? Do they see evidence of the Jesus that we say we love and that we follow? And I'm not just talking about looking differently. One of the things I always remember about high school, one of my favorite things about being in high school, was non-uniform day. Do you remember that when you were at school? You had non-uniform day. That was the day you could ditch the uniform, the prison uniform it felt like. And you could put on your own clothes and you could express yourself in your own way. And in, in my high school, I liked non-uniform day because that was the day my cousin Chad would chew up and he would express himself as only he could. You see, my cousin Chad was a punk rocker. And I'm not talking about your we want to be punk rockers that sit around the front of City Hall. I'm talking about a full-on proper punk rocker. Tartan trousers, chains, safety pins, and a mohawk. Mohican hairstyle. And it was colored. He sprayed it different colors. And that's how he showed up to school on non-uniform day. And they couldn't do anything about it. I loved it. So, is it about just looking differently in that kind of a non-uniform day, shallow kind of sense? You know, it's not just a matter of looking differently. It's, it's not about being that shallow. It's about seeing the transformation and change that takes place in a life. How we use our finances, how we treat others around us, how we conduct ourselves at work or college. The evidence of something that has happened inside of us that's leaking out of us and that's rubbing off on others. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do people notice what Jesus has done in our lives? Do they see that we're different? You see, words are cheap. Most of our friends don't care much about what we preach. But they pay very close attention to how we live. And our walk will always talk much louder than our talk talks. So we've got to allow people to see our changed life. I remember reading the story of a homeless mission. 
somewhere in the United States. And there was a man in this mission who, his name was Joe. And he just showed up every day, showed up every day, and he served. He cleaned up, he washed things, he served food. He cleaned the toilets. And they'd been left in a really desperate state. No job was too lonely for Joe to do. And he did it with a smile on his face. And there was a young homeless person who came into that mission. And he'd been coming days upon days, weeks upon weeks. And he'd been seeing Joe. And then one night, a preacher got up and shared this gospel message and invited people to respond. And this young man went to the front because he heard this message and he believed it was true. And at the front, he was praying a prayer over and over. He said, Lord, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. And this preacher, who was a little bit concerned, kind of leaned over and said, Son, it would be much better if you prayed, make me like Jesus. And the young man looked up at him and said with all sincerity, Is he like Joe? Is he like Joe? What do people see when they watch us? Would they want that life? Because you might be the only story that someone may ever get to read about Jesus. The last big thought that I want to leave with you as we wrap this up is this. We've got to always be prepared to tell our story. This blind man, this ex-blind man, is brought before the religious leaders and he's grilled. He's interrogated. And then they bring his parents in and they grill them too. What's happened? He doesn't give any theological answers. He doesn't give the history of Jesus. He just tells what he knows. I was blind Then I met Jesus, and now I see. They grill his parents. They tell him he's old enough to to answer for himself. Go ask him. The religious leaders, they threw up their hands. They went back to the ex-blind man, and they once more say, now tell us what happened. And the blind man, who's probably a little bit impatient by now, and Reading between the lines, I kind of read it like this. Listen, I might have been blind, but you guys are clearly deaf. I was blind, but I met Jesus, and now I see. This blind man hadn't gone to Bible school or Bible college. He didn't have all the answers, but he knew one thing. His story. His story. And he knew what his life was like, and he knew... Jesus changed it, and he knew what his life was like now. And he was prepared to tell that story. Didn't have all the theological questions answered, but he had the story of a changed life. The truth is, some people have great theological answers, but they don't have a changed life. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 reminds us, instead you must worship God. Christ as as Lord of your life. And if you're asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But you must do in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And if people speak evil against you, 
you will, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Jesus. So I bring this to a close this morning. John chapter 9 is a reminder to me, hopefully to all of us, that among God's people, everyone is a participant. None of us are spectators. The modern education system that we kind of grew up with is built on the premise of mastery rather than practice. We go to school, we learn information, and then when we've mastered a given field, we go and we participate in that field. We come, we grow, and then we go. And we've adopted that philosophy into the church too. And there's some value in it for sure. We go to church, we grow in our faith, and one day when we've it all figured out, when we know enough, we go and we serve. It's a well-meaning model of discipleship. It's got this idea that information leads to transformation. But here's the problem, I think, is that we become paralyzed into thinking we don't have enough information, we don't have enough training to participate in God's purposes. And it results in a question. And the question is the question, how? How do we do it? And that's a question, I think, in the church of avoidance. If we claim we don't understand, don't know how to do something, and we do that long enough, then people will maybe stop expecting much from us, including Jesus. Waiting and trying to figure out how to leads to apathy that puts off participation in God's story right now. I think we need to make a shift. And the shift is from how to to want to. And that's more about the posture of our hearts than the information in our heads. We've got to always be prepared to share our story. Now, some of us might be a little scared when we think about this. I don't really want to tell others about what Jesus has done for me because well, that would be like preaching, right? I'd be like an evangelist. And the truth is, some of us have had very negative experiences of that with our Northern Ireland version of Christianity. The turn or burn brand. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that you've got to be like that. Please don't. We just need to tell our story. And we get to tell a better story as we live our lives before a watching world. You see, the story you tell is both proclamation and presence. It's about what we share about Jesus and how we live that out amongst others. So in the midst of many dark stories, the people of God are a light in that darkness. Our story is a story of life, and it's a story of blessing in the world. It's also a story of resistance as we push back and critique the story of our age. We live and tell our story in the way that we practice our faithfulness 
as we, the stand we take for justice, peacemaking, the way we care for creation and the environment, the way that we treat the poor, the way that we love our spouses, our kids, our friends, the way we live out our married or our single lives, the way we approach our work. It's expressed in our generosity. It's expressed in our hospitality. We have a better story to tell. Let's go and share it because you just might be this week the only story someone gets to see and hear about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage that we find in John chapter 9, this miracle of transformation, this eucatastrophe in the life of a man who had been born blind. A reminder to us that you make all the sad things come untrue. And we pray, God, that you would allow, that you would help us to allow you to change us and transform us. That you would help us to let others see that changed life. And that we would always be prepared to share that story and word and deed with those we come into contact with in our lives. Jesus, help us for your glory and for your name's sake we pray. Amen.